Hey, and welcome to the Resound Church podcast. Whether it's your first or your 40th time tuning in, we're so glad you're here. And we pray that you get something powerful from today's sermon. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for your blood that makes the way, God, that we can enter into your presence with no hesitations no barriers, no blockages, no regrets, no restrictions, that we can come just as we are into your presence and into your peace. So we thank you, Father, that we can do that because of you sending your Son. In your name, amen. Awesome. Thank you, church. You may grab your seats. Thank you, band. So here we are, church, on Good Friday to remember, to reflect, to recognize the significance of what the cross is and what Christ did for us. And so what I want to do is I want to share, I want to look at that story of the cross, I want to unpack it and share a few key things. Something's happened with my mic. It's better now. We don't know what's happening. All right, if it happens again... Uh, we're going to send complaints to Pip and not to me. That would be handy and thank you. It was funny. As I was preparing um, throughout the week, you know, I was praying. I was like, oh, you know, God, it's Good Friday. What do you want me to say? How do you want me to say it? And, and all these things. Um, and it was really weird. I had this feeling kind of building within me, and, and I still feel it now. Um, standing on this stage speaking to you. And it was the fact that I just felt woefully inadequate. That someone like me is meant to somehow communicate the significance and importance of the cross when at times I myself feel so totally undeserving of it, and at other times I I treat the sacrifice of Christ and the cross with such a sense of apathy and indifference. And so I was feeling all these feelings. In one sense, I didn't feel worthy enough because who am I to share this extraordinary story? And then the flip side of it was that I felt like I couldn't share this story because I know the times of when I treat the sacrifice of what Christ did with a sense of apathy and indifference. And so I was feeling all these things, and I still feel them right here, right now, standing on this stage. And all it just made me think about is the seriousness of the message that I want to share with you this morning. And so if I can be honest with you and open with you this morning, 
I simply want to start off just by saying one thing. You know, whether you're in the building, whether you're watching online, whether you have a relationship with Jesus or or not, I beg you, and I say that meaning every sense of that word, you know, I urge you to grab hold of the understanding of what Christ did on that cross for you. That what it means for you now and what it may continue to mean for you in the future. You see, because when Jesus died on the cross, and it's actually the center point of the Bible, everything in the Old Testament points towards it, and everything in the New Testament points back to it. It's the significant foundational aspect of our faith. And so this morning, I want to share this story. I want to focus on some key aspects. I want to teach and challenge and encourage you in some areas as well. But my hope throughout this whole service is that somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you, is going to show you that the cross and what Jesus did is so extraordinary that there's nothing that is even going to come close to explaining it and nothing that we can do to come close that we even deserve it. And so as I, as I go through the story, I want to unpack a couple of key things. You know, for most of us, we understand the story of the cross. We understand what it means and, and, and you know, we see the lead up to it throughout the Gospels. You know, Jesus is with his disciples. He, he, he's warning them. He's having conversations with them that, you know, a time is going to come where, where he's going to be handed over. He's going to be killed. He's going he's gonna to suffer things. And at first the di- disciples, they sort of understand it when Jesus is telling them. But in another sense, they don't really understand it as well. They kind of feel, you know, it talks about it in Matthew and you can read about it when Jesus tells them that, you know, he's, he's going to die, the son of man will suffer many things. They understand that. They feel a little bit of grief, but they don't really understand the significance that's taking place, the significance of what Christ is going to do. And so the disciples are all having dinner together. And, you know, we commonly, you know, refer to it as the Last Supper. And they're talking around about a whole range of different things whole range of different topics. You know, Jesus is talking about someone that's going to betray him, one of them, and they don't really understand that. There's other conversations that happen. They're talking about, the, the disciples are arguing about who the greatest is among them and who's going to be the greatest and things like that. And then we also see in the Last Supper that we get this first um, example of communion that Jesus leads these disciples through. That, you know, he, he takes some bread, he, he takes some wine and breaks it and gives it to all of them and said, you know, this is my body that is broken and my blood that is poured out. Do this in remembrance of me. And we see that first example of communion. And then they pray. And after that, they go into the garden. And, and that's where I want to unpack something because I see something extraordinary happen in that moment. And, and so we pick up the story in Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 38. And I just want to read it to you now. It says, They went to an olive grove called Gethsemane. 
And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James and John with him and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. And and the passage continues in the same sort of pattern a few more times. You know, Jesus withdraws to go and pray. He he returns to the disciples and they've fallen asleep again. He encourages them, challenges them, urges them to to pray and find strength and solace in in God. And then he withdraws and, and comes back and the disciples have fallen asleep again. And it's funny, if you read that passage and look at that passage of Mark, you would read through it and just assume that, you know, the disciples fell asleep because, I don't know, they're tired or they had too much wine at dinner or, you know, whatever it might have been. But Luke actually explains why they fell asleep. Um, Luke chapter 22, verse 45, and he explains that. And he says that they were asleep because they were so exhausted from sorrow. They were so emotionally fatigued because they were starting to get a glimpse of an understanding of what Christ was about to go through. They were starting to get an understanding of what was going to happen to him. And so what I think is really interesting about the passage of what's happening in the garden is that you see the grief and the sorrow and the anxiousness of the disciples And you see the grief, the sorrow, and the anxiousness of Christ. And, you know, we just read at Mark 14, 33, Jesus is saying that he's deeply troubled and and distressed. You know, he has the amount of grief that almost puts him to death because of it. He's that on edge. He's that much of an emotional wreck. And there's actually a passage in Luke that describes that that in in the garden, in this moment, that Jesus' sweat was in fact like drops of blood. Which is extraordinary in the fact that it's actually a recognized medical disorder that can cause you to sweat blood under extreme circumstances. And so what we see is we have these two groups. You know, you have the disciples in one hand and you have Jesus in the other. And so they're both wrestling with these feelings, these emotions of stress, of pressure, of anxiety. And we can understandably see that Jesus is suffering that more so. And that makes sense to us because he understands what's coming ahead. But what really stood out to me in that garden, what really stood out to me in these 10 verses, eight verses of scripture is how they responded See, what happens in that garden is the disciples, much like us, fell asleep. And I'm sure most or if not all of us have had those tough, big, emotionally taxing days. And we're just like, oh, I just want to go to sleep. I just want to forget about it. That's just the easy solution. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
See, I think that's so interesting because for those of us that know the story of the cross, after this moment in the garden, the story starts to progress rather rapidly. The ball starts rolling and it starts moving quite quickly. So I kind of see this moment in the garden that Jesus has with God as sort of this last opportunity. This is like his last opportunity, like, okay, now this is too hard, I'm backing off. Like, we'll come up with another solution, like, I just can't do it, it's too overwhelmed, I just can't. But Jesus doesn't do that. You know, we read it already. He, He goes to God and he cries out, he says, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. And I think that's such an incredibly courageous decision to make in the face of such adversity. The the amount we see in this moment, in in this garden, intense vulnerability from Jesus. It is intense. You know, the disciples have never seen him like this. They've always seen him calm, cool, collected. He's got it all together. But in this garden, in this intimate moment, he's vulnerable, he's fatigued, he's emotional, he's stressed. He's on edge. And yet he responds, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And I think that's such an incredible, extraordinary statement because what it shows in that moment is that it simply shows us that there's no plan B with the love of God. There's no backup. There's no alternative. It's not like, okay, this is too hard. We'll find another option or we'll find one where I'm not as in is not much pain or anything like that. No, no, no. Jesus is like, whatever the cost, whatever it takes, if this is what it takes for for my people to, to be set free, to be redeemed, to be raised up, to be restored, to be released, then this is what it takes. He's in that moment and says, your will be done. And it's funny, you know, as I was reading through that passage and God was just speaking to me about it and I was thinking of how I live my life as a Christian, how I see other Christians around me and people that, you know, have a relationship with God and all this sort of stuff. And I looked and I was thinking about that and it seemed to me as though we have... So many people that I, that I see, and I'm guilty of doing it as well, that I can sometimes look at circumstances and, and situations and, and they can determine how I view God, how I view Jesus. You know, is my marriage healthy or not? Did I get that job promotion? Are my kids doing well at school? You know, I see people, and I'm guilty of it too as well, using those things to determine whether I think God loves me or not by looking at those things. But, you know, if we look at that, if we try and look at circumstances and situations to see whether God loves us or not by answering certain things and not answering things or whatever that we're going to continually and we'll always wonder whether he loves us or not, whether he does, whether he doesn't. 
But if you look to the cross, you will have no reason to doubt that he does. And so we see that, you know, after this this intimate, this vulnerable moment in the garden that, that Jesus has, that, you know, the story continues after that. You know, the disciples are woken up again for the, for the third time. And, you know, shortly after that, Judas appears with a detachment of soldiers and comes, betrays Jesus, and Jesus is, you know, arrested and is taken away. And, you know, once again, it's earlier in the, in the chapters, but before this has all happened, all these, the disciples have made all these promises and declarations to Jesus. You know, there's, I'm never going to leave you. I'll never abandon you. I'll never disown you. And all these kinds of things. And as soon as the guards first come and arrest Jesus, every single one of the disciples has fled and abandoned him. And... I wonder how often we might do that with Jesus as well. At the first sign of trouble, we run away from him. When in fact in this moment, Jesus is going to make a way for us. So the story continues. We know that, you know, after Jesus is, you know, captured in chains or whatever, he gets taken before the Sanhedrin, the, you know, Jewish religious leaders of the day. He is interrogated, questioned, there's false accusations and witnesses that are brought forth and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And eventually it unsurprisingly comes to the conclusion that, Jesus is meant to die. Uh, he's meant to be, should be killed and everything like that. So then he goes to Pilate, which is the Roman governor at that time. And, and it's interesting in the fact that Jesus has a conversation, you know, with Pilate. And Pilate doesn't think that Jesus is guilty of, of the crimes that he's being accused of. Thinks, you know, I don't see anything wrong with him. He, he's not, you know, causing a rebellion or, or, or anything like that. But while this conversation is happening, there's people outside. They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And eventually Pilate does what we do far too often in the fact that he succumbs to peer pressure. And he says, all right, crucify him. And then Jesus is led away to suffer one of the most extreme forms of torture. You know, in fact, the crucifixion had been perfected by the Roman Empire. And it was meant to be so degrading for those that suffered that punishment. That when you were hanging on that cross, your completely naked and you've got you know nails or, or ropes around your arms and legs and whatever it might be but in that moment when you're hanging on that cross you are considered to be less than human and so Jesus is led away and, and as he's led away and but before he goes to the cross you know he, he's first brutally whipped 
with a cat of nine tails that has um, bits of stone, sharp bits of metal on the edge end of the whip. Basically, the purpose of the whip is, you know, those small bits of stone, whatever they might be, are meant to, you know, get flogged against your back. That cause bruising, opens up the blood vessels, and then the sharp bits of metal are meant to rake open the skin of Jesus' back. So that happens. It's led to the cross. He's walking to the cross, made to carry it. And then he's on the cross. Then what happens is the one moment, the one moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross is the one moment when he can be forgiven for not being graceful. That one moment when he's hanging on the cross is the one moment where he would have a right to yell, scream, get angry, curse those that have put him in this position and everything else that goes before it. I feel like if he's got any excuse to do anything like that, it's in that moment when he's on that cross. But he doesn't. He simply says in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. He's hanging on a cross. He's been brutally tortured, beaten. He has a crown of thorns pierced through his flesh. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And it's so extraordinary because, you know, he said those words 2,000 years ago. But he continues to say those words to us here and now. You know, the most extraordinary thing that I find about this story is obviously the story of the cross. But something else within it is that, you know, Jesus, he sees it all. So he's seen you when you doubt him. He's seen you when you question him when you blame Him, when you get angry at Him, when you abandon Him, when you disappoint Him. He's seen all those things. He's seen when you've betrayed someone, when you've lied, when you've hurt someone, when you said something you know you shouldn't have, when you thought something you know you shouldn't have thought, when you looked at something you know you shouldn't have looked at. Jesus Christ is the one person in the world that knows the worst about you and is the one person in the world that loves you the most. He's the one person that knows the worst about you and that loves you the most.
I remember one time, um, it was uh, my final night at youth last year. And uh, what the leaders had organized is they'd got um, like a wall and they'd gotten the kids to write down um, like things, highlights of what they'd remembered from me, you know, me doing dumb stuff or, or funny things at youth or whatever it might have been. And so the leaders gave to me at the end of the night all the things that the kids wrote down and stuff like that. One of the things that one of the kids wrote down was that he wrote, I will never forget that if I was the only person in this world, it would still be enough for Jesus to go to the cross for me. If you were the only person in this world, it would be enough for Jesus to go to the cross for you. Didn't do it because of sheer volume. He didn't do it just like, I'll just do everyone for a blanket and and that's it. He did it because he cares about you. Not for the position that you hold in your workplace, not for the role you play in your family, not for any of the other things, but for who you are. And at the end of the day, that's what the cross is. An opportunity where Jesus has got his arms wide open and say, here I am. I want you just as you are. And sometimes we get into this thinking like, oh, I'm not good enough or I've made all these mistakes or, or, or all these things happen. Like I feel so ashamed. And God's like, yeah, just give me your shame. God wants you as you are. What we've got is we've got these inner little cups of communion um, probably on your seats or under your seats. And we're going to take a minute and we'll take communion um, But it's funny, you know, I I was thinking, as I shared at the start, you know, I was feeling so inadequate about sharing about the cross. And and it's funny, you know, we look at this and and it's just a little 20 mils of juice or or whatever it is and and a little cracker. And, And it seems so small and so insignificant it, it, you know, it, it fits in the palm of my hand. It, it's something small and doesn't seem to make much difference. But the difference is not the type of juice that I'm drinking or, or the type of bread or, or, or cracker that I eat. The difference is whether I choose to receive the love of Christ or not. And see, at the end of the day, Christ did all of this on the cross for you, but he loves you so much that he's not going to force that decision onto you. Because God loves you so much, he wants you to choose him willingly. And, and so we're going to partake in a second, but... You know, I want you to take a moment and, and just think about that. And, you know, you might be sitting here, you might be watching online and you don't really understand majority of what I've said. 
and like that's okay we can you know talk about it later and, and explain things and everything like that but the biggest thing that you really need to know is there is a man 2,000 years ago that got nailed to a cross just because he loved you so what we're going to do is I'm just going to stop talking for a second and I just want you just to reflect just think about what the cross means to you what this story might mean to you whether you are a Christian whether you're not and you're hearing it for the first time whatever it might be what does it mean to you Let me pray and then we can partake together. Father God, just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you that you sent your son regardless of what it costs, regardless of the pain, regardless of how much it hurt. Simply because you loved us. Simply because you want us to know that we're free. Free from sin, from shame, from rejection, from everything. And and so, Father, I just pray uh, as we go throughout our day that somehow, some way, what you did on that cross would get bigger in our lives. That the significance of the sacrifice that you made would increase that we would be more in awe of what you did that we'd have a greater attitude of thankfulness because Father we are so in awe of what you did when you sent Jesus so Father I just thank you in your name Amen awesome let's partake together just want to finish with something I said earlier because you'll most likely forget most of what I say by the time you walk out these doors that's okay I might do the same if I was sitting in your seat too so no judgment I promise but if you're going to remember this something remember this the cross is so extraordinary that there is nothing that will come close to explaining it And nothing we can do to come close to deserving that. Understanding that statement will change the way that you live your life. Thanks for listening through this message recorded live at Resound Church in Melbourne. You can find out more about who we are online, including our service times and live streams. Have a great week and we'll catch you next time.